Thanks, Mike, for finally letting me tour the Cage Club Podcast Network studios. No problem, Brian. But hey, could you not tell Joey? He hates it when you mess around with his stuff. Is that every Nick Cage movie ever? Yup. From Fast Times to Massive Talent, this network is pretty much the house that Nicky Coppola built. Hey, what about over there? Where do those stairs go? I mean, Raul Julia, I, I don't even want to try, uh, but I guess I'll try my Freddy Forrest <laughs> impression. <laughs> Fair. Uh, okay, so he's, he's something like, uh, yeah, you know, uh, it's the Uncle Francis's wine cellar, Franny. It's the, it's the Cut by Cut Francis Ford Coppola podcast over here. And this is a Cage Club podcast network production. That's not bad. Has anyone has anyone ever done a Freddie Forrest impression? I don't think so, but it was good. Do you think anyone has ever called him Franny Ford Coppola? Oh my god, that, that's well. Franny is Terry Gar in the movies. So no, that, I know, I, I know. The impression, I, but, uh, I don't know. It's uh, maybe. Well, Bona said, uh, "Have a seat, have a glass, and welcome to Uncle Francis's wine cellar." And this is a little date we're having today. I'm Brian Rodriguez, and. Where's Michael? We're not starting the podcast without Michael. <laughs> well, I guess we can start because here I am. How's it going, my Valentine? <laughs> Good, you didn't stand me up on Valentine's Day for our <laughs> Valentine's Day edition. I'm I'm excited. Well, Brian, uh, is it Valentine's Day or is it the Fourth of July? Oh, we'll we'll get into that for sure. <laughs> this is a Fourth of July movie, but no one no one would have appreciated it if we covered it as a Fourth of July movie. <laughs> Let's be honest. No. <laughs> Today we're talking Coppola's love story, his love letter to cinema, and one of the biggest Francis Ford Coppola box office flops of all time. This is a polarizing one today, Mike. One yeah. from the heart. Oh, man. I'm very excited about this movie. I mean, Brian, I don't think this will be a two-parter episode, but I want to revisit this movie every once in a while because there's just too much to go over here in one episode. And, and this this collection, this DVD I have, has so much extra features and stuff to talk about Ooh. and all that. So, like, glad we're here today, but maybe we do this every Valentine's Day? I don't know. Maybe. Or at least the bonus stuff. You know, yeah. I really want to get into that, if that's the case, because I've never seen the bonus things on that DVD. Mm-hmm. But before yeah. we talk one from the heart, Mike, I want to remind you and all the cellar dwellers out there, the nieces and nephews, to keep your friends close and your fellow podcasters closer and hit that subscribe button wherever you're listening. Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher. While you're there, leave us a positive review. Tell a friend about Uncle Francis's wine cellar. Just don't tell Joey Lewandowski as we are in the cellar without his permission. <laughs> Other than him, tell all your friends about the show. We need more listeners. And follow us, of course, on social media. We are at Uncle Francis's Wine Cellar on Instagram. I am at Oh My Rodriguez on Twitter. And Mike, the Mikester everywhere still? Yeah, pretty much. For now and forever. <laughs> now and forever. I love it. DJ Return coming soon uh maybe you never know my five dads reunion quick funny story though about that mikester name is that uh, uh someone at work just like randomly called me that like someone was coming to pay and was like all right mikester how much do i owe you and they, i was like they have no idea 
<laughs> they have no idea your past as one of the most legendary DJs of all time well, in the New York City scene. <laughs> well, not in this dimension, but yeah. <laughs> and and Mike, we are recording just before Valentine's Day, and we're actually recording in the morning, a Saturday morning, so a little different than usual. And when we signed on, you're like, oh, it's a shame you can't drink today. Well, Mike, this is Uncle Francis's wine cellar. We power through. Plus, it's almost the brunch hour. So I will be drinking something <laughs> special today for Valentine's Day. You see Ooh. that nice little pink? The Francis Coppola Diamond Collection Prosecco Rosé. Oh, wow. That is lovely looking and wonderfully wonderful sounding. Um, okay, yeah, I guess we are close to brunch you know um too bad i can't i still wasn't able to track down any victoria coffee that would have been nice to no. have at this hour <laughs> i know Help yeah me i mean out it's, listeners <laughs> it's more a coffee hour you're right th- than a drinking hour but you know it's it's francis o'clock somewhere as they say oh that's so. a good way to put it <laughs> let's hope i don't poke my eye out with the pop here huh Ooh, nice little sound effect there. Yeah, is that that ASMR they talk about? <laughs> no, I, I think uh, this was in the sound effect library at Zoetrope. A little <laughs> That's hilarious. Oh, my God. So at times, the sound design is, like, so perfect. And at other times, it's so clumsy that it's just all around always so charming in this movie. I love it. Mm. Well, Francis did call this film... A work in progress, so... Oh, there's a fucking surprise. (laughs) (laughs) Brian, like, that's why we started this show, is because, like, (laughs) duh. Like, no duh. Like, when is two from the heart coming out? I need another cut. Uh, Yeah, we'll talk about that. So much to talk about. But the fact that there's really only one cut of this film that's, like, widely available... It's amazing. We're definitely getting another one. We're definitely getting another one, I'd say. Yeah, he needs some profits off of the next movie first. Like, he needs, you know what I'm saying? Like, he's a little in the hole right now. He's got to get Megaopolis out, and then, like, you know, proceeds of that could go to recutting the rest of his movies. Speaking of in the hole, Mike, your Mike's merchandise of the episode has probably gotten a lot of our listeners in the hole uh, for all the great Coppola-related merchandise that I hope they're purchasing. No one has purchased us the, what was it, $100,000 watch or whatever it was. No, yet, but... not yet. No one has uh, sent us to Sicily yet to <laughs> go on tour of the Godfather locations. But, you know, fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. But you do have something for us today, don't you? Yes. Oh, yeah. Wonderful segment, by the way. Sorry if I if I just tripped over it at the end there. But um, as always, Mike's merch. Got to get a jingle somehow, some way, one day. Well, I, I've been playing the Yoda merchandise. I'm sorry, the yogurt merchandising, merchandising for now. So. <laughs> Good. Yeah, I go with that. I love Mel Brooks, love Spaceballs. So I approve. What is this place? What is it that you do here? Merchandising. Merchandising? What's that? Merchandising. Come, I'll show you. Open up this door. <laughs> Come, walk this way. Take a look. We put the picture's name on everything. Merchandising, merchandising. Where the real money from the movie is made. 
Cool. So today, you know, I figured in on, I kind of hinted at this last week, unless you cut it out. I'm not sure. I haven't had time to hear that one yet, but kind of hinted about it last week, said um, I would really like to get one of these at some point. And this looks like a fun one. I sent you a link for a toy zoetrope. You know, we are talking so much about Uncle Francis's studio zoetrope. I figured, um, you know, it would be really cool to own one of these sometime. I think these would make a perfect gift. They could be really expensive and very intricate, but the one I sent you looks like something you might be able to find at like a science kids store. It's by Brainstorm Toys and it's just zoetrope, the classic animation toy. And it looks cool. It's got like a couple different sheets that you can that you can apply inside so you could see like a whale swimming or a penguin walking or a cat running all those kinds of things and uh you know if you're inclined to do so and inspired uh you could probably make your own to put inside of this thing you know and having said that you know maybe i could even one day just build my own zoetrope you know how hard could it be it's pretty simple you probably could find online instructions really easily and uh would be a fun sort of uh, arts and craft uh, for an afternoon or so. But yeah, so I sent you the link for eBay so you could check it out and uh, and see what I'm talking about. Great. Yeah. And definitely check out our last episode on uh, that documentary, the basically the early history of American Zoetrope. That might even be the title. Um, it's a grab bag episode. We talk about a lot of interesting stuff there for sure. Uh, the action bronson cannoli shop thing was awesome mike so that was your gift last time some cannolis yep and by the way still looking out for cannoli sponsorship out there so if you professionally make cannolis (laughs) and want to donate them to the show sponsor the show please hit us up on social media this zoetrope is interesting because i didn't even know what it was so you educated me also i gotta say this you hit the nail on the head would what did you say what kind of toy store did you say this would be at Oh, like a science store for kids, right? Because like no, but I know an exactly imaginarium. Imaginarium. Yeah. that's the name, right? Yeah. Because when when you were a kid, like, and you went to the mall, like there was like the nerdy toy store, which was like Imaginarium or a couple others I can think of, and I don't remember the names. And then there was like KB Toys, where it was just like in your face yeah, the toys you, that had commercials where I on TV. <laughs> yeah, I was. I was a manager there when I was like nineteen, twenty, and then. I think they got, then it closed. Like KB's went away in the in the two thousand. So I wonder if you sold me a toy as a kid. You, you were nineteen. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> possible. Did you like Pokemon at the time or Episode One? There's tons of Episode One stuff that year. No, yeah, I mean probably. You know. <laughs> oh, you know. Uh, I think I remember you, Brian. You bought a Quadranero action figure, the Pod Racer, <laughs> and an Odie Mandrell. Correct. I was big into pod racing back then. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Stay tuned for our show about Star Wars pod racing called The Podcast. The Podcast, yes. (laughs) Now, I've been participating in your segment, Mike, the last couple of weeks because I've been fascinated, one, with the Academy Museum, of course, the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. Uh, That, I think, opened up last year. But this year, they have an exhibit for The Godfather, uh, 50th Anniversary. I hope I can check it out. Who knows? You know, trip to LA is not the easiest thing to do. But they mm-hmm. they also have an awesome online store, and they've been releasing a lot of very cool and just interesting Godfather merchandise. So, Mike, if you can click the link I sent you, this is my contribution to the merch table today. Okay. So 
they finally deliver. <laughs> oh, you're happy about this one. I'm surprised. I didn't know how it would go over. So yeah. We are talking today about a Jenko olive oil, 500 milliliter tin. Of course, Jenko is the olive oil company from the Godfather series. $32. No special museum price, which I thought was interesting. Oh, it's not filled with olive oil, though? It's just <laughs> this, the tin? This is what is confusing me here. So let me read it. Jenko olive oil delivers the finest imported organic extra virgin olive oil made of Italian olives pressed in Sicily. Product of Italy. 500 milliliter collector's tin. I think that implies there's olive oil in there. No, but I'm not no, sure. No, 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 it doesn't. Because it says collector's tin. That's all you're getting. A 500 milliliter sized collector's Mike, no. tin. I think you're wrong. And I, I was with you until I started. It has nutritional mm. facts on oh. the side. Yeah, well, that doesn't matter. It could still be empty. It's just like a prop. But here's, here's okay, there's more info. Because it says about Corleone fine Italian foods. So is this a section in the store where they're selling food products? Because... Because there's this little blurb, there's like a paragraph to here about the olive oil, you know? So now I'm wondering. Now I think, I wondering I think it's this. actually in there. It's not clear. They should say it's in there because you're right. They're, they're just selling the tin. But I think they're telling you that the tin is the collector's item. But there's olive oil in there. Because if you read okay. the side, you could like zoom in. Store closed in a cool, dry place away from heat source and direct sunlight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bottle harvested. Harvest date, okay, they're, what they're harvesting. Yeah, the but if it's if it's a no, but if it's a prop and it's like supposed to be like screen accurate, and you want to do your own like Godfather bar room or whatever, you know, like you want someone to lift, like pick it up and be like, wow, they really like this is authentic. Like this is like they'd make in the movie. I'm not. I'm, I'm leaning more now towards the fact that it's filled because if it's not, that's a it's a ripoff. <laughs> It's got to be filled, yes, it's $32. right? $32. It's $32. It has a seal from the Italian agricultural, like, whatever, uh, okay. government organization. So, like, you're right. They could have emptied the olive oil out or never filled it up, but that would be bullshit. Hopefully, it's filled with olive oil. $32. Because if it is, you know, you got to use the olive oil inside and keep the tin. Yeah. So, yeah, I think it's a good deal. Yeah. Good deal if it's got the actual olive oil in it. Bad deal if it's just the prop, but still the best one from the store yet. Now, wow. uh, if I may, pick, if I may piggyback a little because I just typed zoetrope into the store at the Academy Museum, and there's a really nice tree ornament. There's a cool little pin. I'm not too crazy about the ones they have. They're like half sized for sale, but you know, good on them. Here they have this animation lab book, so promoting. The zoetrope is nice. They didn't have to do that. It really doesn't have much to do. Well, it has to do with movies, you know what I'm saying? But it's clearly it's here for the Coppola reference. So I think that's cool. Yeah, very cool. I didn't even look, think to search that. I mean, I'm definitely going to be mining the well of this Academy store until <laughs> they become an official sponsor. So stay tuned oh. for more Academy stuff. But I do do like the olive oil. I'm glad you do as well. Yeah. You know, it would be fun to do is like uh, if we get like a Patreon together or whatever, like just put together a montage of all of your reviews once you get like 10 of them or something and you get like a nice little clip and we'll add like background music and, and we'll do, you know, like Ken Burns photos of the items and we'll send them <laughs> like, look what we've been up to. Like, how about, you, you know, chip in a little bit? I hope so. I mean, that that would be nice of them. I mean, we ask for a lot here, but 
it's for a good cause. It's for the promotion yeah. of one of the greatest yeah. artists of all time. Right? We ask, but we yeah, we ask, but we don't expect. You know, we're just fishing. That's all. Sleeping with the fishes. Yes. That's why I said that. It's yeah. Because <laughs> it's culturally relevant. So we're not gonna have too many of these opening segments today because I really want to talk one from the heart. But we, we just have to do the ones that we regularly do, right? So Mike right. Mike Capella. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> me, 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 me. Where in the world is the Godfather streaming? This is an easy one, Mike. Still on Peacock. So if you want to watch The Godfather, The Godfather 2, nice. and The Coda, watch it on the Peacock. But, Brian, if you want to watch The Godfather Part 3, you could pop open that nice VHS copy I gave you for Christmas. Yes, but thank you, want- Mike. <laughs> I, I've realized you've given me two sealed Coppola VHSs because you also give me... Rumblefish, I believe. Yeah, yeah, we'll get there eventually. But I figured, you know, I have, I got too much stuff. Um, <laughs> that's one way to put it. Uh, but I don't need like the nice Blu-ray and the VHS anymore. You know, it's cool for a while. And I figured since, you know, if you need a copy, it, you know, you could watch that copy and then just kind of display it in your little Coppola shrine or something. So. Oh, yeah, it's definitely for display. When, when I move out of the one-bedroom apartment and then have the official Coppola wine cellar the Coppola my, cave yeah the Coppola <laughs> cave in my basement it'll definitely be on display there okay uh mike you got okay here it's news time okay megalopolis update megalopolis update and i'm just gonna call this segment no news is good news nothing new has come from the set since we talked last time I mean, it's less fun for us, but I guess that's a good thing. Yeah, yeah, right? I mean, there was a lot last time, so like things have died down, it seems. It makes me wonder if there's like a publicist involved with any of this, like if Coppola is like, all right, or if someone in the family is like, hey, you know, for PR and stuff, like let's play upon your past, you know, people are looking at the offer maybe and saying like, oh, you're you're regarded as like difficult, like let's let's do that like let's kind of incorporate that persona into (laughs) into the background of this movie that we're doing like that would be such a smart move if there was like a publicist like kind of leaking this stuff here and there being like it's worse than it's it's you know it's going bad it's going bad but like really it's not going that bad or something so like i don't know (laughs) you might not be wrong you might not be wrong because it's gotten me excited not that i wouldn't have been excited already but as uh, the listeners have known when we hear the wild news, we just want to see the movie even more. So, yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, it's not like Coppola hadn't made a bunch of movies over the last 15 years. It's just no one really was interested because it didn't make any buzz or like any of that kind of thing, you know? So it would be a, an interesting tactic. But yeah, I don't know. It's just a guess kind of thing. I, yeah, regardless, I'm very much looking forward to this. So, uh, yeah, just gonna have to wait. See what happens. The only other news I had was, I guess you're a prophet, Mike, because uh, last episode we were talking <laughs> about uh, Paramount Plus yet again and how there's MGM Plus now, which I thought was another streaming service, but apparently it's just the Epix Network rebranding itself as MGM Plus. And then you were like, oh, I'm surprised HBO didn't go with Warner Brothers Plus. And I was like, that sounds so juvenile. And they had already at that point announced that they would be called something along the lines of like, 
Discovery Max or HBO Discovery because they had merged with the Discovery Channel. But apparently, uh, you know, there's been a lot of shakeups there. They've deleted a lot of stuff from HBO Max. Yeah. They've canceled projects. They've oh. greenlit other projects. You know, a lot of shakeups there. A lot of things changing. And one of the things that they found interesting is that while the HBO Max customers would love to have the Discovery content on their platform because it's just more stuff for what they pay, the Discovery Plus platforms, which apparently is a very successful service, but not really into films, right? They do not want to pay more for the HBO stuff because that's just not their clientele. You know what I mean? Mm. Point is, they're rethinking what to name the service after deciding what to name the service. And internet sleuths have found that one of the trademarks they've held, and they actually have a Twitter page for this, which again means nothing. I have a million Instagram pages for podcasts that I haven't started, (laughs) you know? But one of them is WB+. So there is a decent chance they might name the new streaming service with HBO, Discovery, you know, all that other stuff, WB+. So that should be interesting, right? You were right. Do That's it. what you predicted. Do it. Do it. I mean, I missed my calling. Uh, I, I should have gone into, like, advertising. It's just, you know, I never felt I was, like built for that world really like (laughs) i watched mad men in college and i was like screw this yeah i mean that is the that is just to me i mean that makes the most sense it's so obvious you know i just everyone nowadays is talking about built-in brands and you know they've always been talking about brand recognition and now these studios go back like almost 100 years some of them are, are about to and you know you can't get more authentic really than that you can't get more nostalgic than that right like you can't you know everyone's talking about going retro like how much more retro can you go like i don't know i just feel like on all corners like it makes the most sense and and you know like it is the the peak of the pyramid right so it encompasses the whole umbrella of companies so you go back to the first one and then it can be like the head of the hydra right or like the body of the hydra and you can have like all the other companies kind of like growing off from it and stuff so like i think it just makes the most sense in my mind you know always did so i'm glad i hope they do it i don't think people will be pissed either you know because everyone knows like hbo and warner brothers are connected discovery and hbo are connected so like you can connect the dots really easily too i think i think the idea originally pre-discovery merger was the fact that like hbo has such a legacy brand in terms of the high uh quality of content they produce and they figured like hey people really love that mark let's just put that on top of the umbrella but then they realized and again, people at HBO kind of knew this too, like at HBO proper, were like, instead of instead of raising all ships with the tide, they're almost lowering the brand of HBO down to like the other crap that they have on there. So I don't think HBO would mind either of being like a separate section on there. Like before when something was on HBO, you were like, oh, they put their seal of approval on it. Now, not so much because you have, not not to diss these things, I know you like them, but like Justice League movies and, and cartoons right, and right. stuff. And things that wouldn't necessarily yeah. have been on that HBO mark before. But I'm starting to buy in because under the WB brand, you could feel like, oh, let me go to that HBO corridor and it's more of a prestige mark. Let me go to that right. you know, uh, Warner corridor. It's a little bit different. This corridor is different. Yeah. That corridor is different. And I, I think it's good for everybody. Yeah, and, and HBO Max is already doing that with their... 
layout is like you can go to the Cartoon Network section. You can go to like the Discovery section. Maybe I don't know. I haven't really explored, but like you can Not go yet. to like but they have studio. Play. They have the Studio Ghibli stuff there too, or something. Like you could go to the anime corner. I'm, mean, you know what I'm saying. Like they have their hubs. So the way that the app's already set up is intuitive in that direction to be like, all right, now if you open an app that just says wb with the crest on it the big shield you just open that on the side you'll see like hbo discovery you know maybe like looney tunes cartoon network this that the other thing you know the whole list and the gambit and stuff so i think it's a smart move because while hbo is a prestige name the only name in the company with more prestige than that is warner brothers so like that's the only name that could pretty much trump this you know for a title as an app yeah, and it's more all-encompassing, right? When they merged yeah. way back when, Time Warner, that's when Time Magazine had a big mark. But it almost took away from the Warner thing. It would be nice to get back to the studio name, just like Paramount. Yeah, yeah. And even if they don't entirely, like, that's fine because you you just give the idea of it, you know? And then, I don't know. I think it, I think it's smart marketing. I think every studio that can should do something like that. Just bring it all the way back. If you have the app, bring it all the way back to the first brand (laughs) that everything spawned from. We're going to be talking studios today, Mike. We're going to be talking branding because we are talking one from the heart. Oh, man. Coppola's Boondoggle, as some had said, a film that has gotten a lot more recent praise than it did for most of its history. I think we've tipped our hand with how we feel. But let me talk to you first, Mike, about the first time you watched One from the Heart. What's your history with this film? All right. So this definitely was around the time. I was trying to remember where I got this. I think I might have got this at Barnes & Noble at the time. But uh, I was in college. I was watching like a movie a day at least i was really into coppola i was watching apocalypse now a lot right and i was watching all of his other films like i discovered tucker at that time um definitely the conversation i still haven't seen all of his movies i haven't seen the rainmaker i haven't seen jack all the way through i think i just found this sort of going through the dvd section and i was like what the hell is this and it's like this double DVD and I looked on the back. It's like that's a lot of special features. It's got audio commentary. It's got like original Tom Waits studio sessions. Uh, all these documentaries on the back. I was like, this is worth whatever it costs. So I bought it. I brought it home. I put it on, and I was pretty much just like mesmerized. Like right from the start, I was like, this is nothing like I was expecting. You know, I was not prepared for the dreamlike quality. Like this is almost. In a weird way, I feel like this is Coppola's like attempt or his way of doing sort of like a David Lynch thing, like his dream logic film in a lot of ways. Uh, but he's got such a cheerier disposition about life in general I think that like it's so much more uplifting than a lot of Lynch stuff. But like it feels like in the same sort of a area because of how strange and bizarre it is and weird and, and stuff. And then I rewatched it with the director's commentary. I watched all the documentaries at the time. I don't think I've seen it since though, you know? And I put it back on and I absolutely fell back in love with it immediately. And it just like I, I gushed over almost everything about this movie. And I just I just think it's like incredible. And that's why I think we should revisit it often, you know, because I'm definitely going to have things to say, but I'm also going to forget a lot. So while it made like a huge impression on me, it, it 
at the time got a little lost in the mix because I was just consuming so much that I never really had the chance to dive back into it until now. So I'm really glad that we're covering this today. Yeah, me too. This is this was actually my first watch. It's a movie I knew a lot about just from reading about Coppola, Coppola research. It had this reputation and I knew it was sort of gaining a new appreciation in the last 10 years. So I was eager to watch it. I definitely held off recently because I knew we were going to do it for the show at some point. You know, I was really, really excited to see it this time. So a uh, quick question. So you watched it on that DVD? Yeah. Yeah, I watched this DVD version. Um, it just says a, a stunning new high-definition transfer in the original aspect ratio, 133 to 1, supervised by the cinematographer. So I brought it up before, but this is so weird to me that there's really only one readily available version of this film. This seems like the kind of film that would have tons of versions. There might be some reasons for that. Uh, you brought the aspect ratio, though. I, mean, I I rented this, I think, on Amazon or YouTube or one of one of those services. Um, they all have the one three three aspect ratio, which is the video aspect ratio, if I'm correct. Like yeah. it's more more of the TV format than which yep. I thought was interesting because mm-hmm. for some of these like artisticy films, I expect them to be in that traditional aspect ratio. Oh, I, I have a theory about that, and I think I think you might get into it in the extra. Uh, special features, but I could be misremembering it, but I, I feel like at one point he wanted to maybe do this like live on TV, like as a, as like a television movie or so. I don't know why I have that thought in my head. Hmm. whenever I think of this, like, cause, cause I know the way that he shot it was, you know, so many long takes. It's almost like, like this huge play that he's filming. And so, I think the idea was to try and do it without any cuts and or any any stopping and to cut between cameras, you know, like a sitcom. So I could be having like my memory wires crossed and information. It could just be how he shot the film. Like he tried to shoot it like a television production or something, which could attribute to the aspect ratio, but could be also getting ahead of myself here with all of this. Yeah, I didn't hear that he wanted to do it on TV, but I I think there's some meat on the bone there. I do want to get into the history of this film because it is fascinating. It's one of the things I look forward to talking uh, about most. Oh, just real quick, though, about possibilities of extra cuts of this film there are deleted and alternate scenes on the dvd so there's a possibility to swap some things in and out if you wanted to mike when i tell you uh, about the production you're gonna be like why haven't they done this because there's a lot of that (laughs) this is the film after apocalypse now we know how hard it was to shoot apocalypse now and then the amazing hit it became everyone was like oh coppola's not an idiot coppola's back this is amazing this is great (laughs) uh even though people went crazy on that set we'll get into that at some point of course francis could do whatever he wants and there was this script going around and francis got the idea hey let me just shoot an easy romantic comedy but nothing's ever easy with francis ford coppola Um, the budget was originally two million dollars it was an mgm product Money in the bag, essentially. And Francis decides to tweak here and there. The first thing (laughs) he decided to do was, instead of being in the jungle or or being on location, we've seen him do this later with Dracula, but he decides to shoot it, as you alluded to, all on sets. And he actually purchases 
a studio in L.A. It was the General Service Studio in Hollywood, to be exact. And he renames it Zoetrope Studios. Amazing. Amazing. And, like, you, you mentioned Dracula. Like, Dracula makes so much more sense after watching this again. Oh, yeah. This, this is, like, uh, a dry run for doing a movie like Dracula, visually. Once we see them all, I kind of want to do... I know on the High School Slumber Party, my high school podcast, we do, like, triple features. I kind of want to do, like, a companion piece thing. Like, if someone says, oh, I really like Dracula, what movie should I see? Maybe One from the Heart is a good uh, suggestion, mm. right? Yeah, like pairing a wine. Oh, there you go. There you go. Planning the show on the show. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> hey, we got to it. Nice. I think we did it earlier. We just forgot to acknowledge it, which is probably another thing <laughs> <for> people. Most <laughs> likely. Acknowledging that we acknowledged it. Okay. So, <laughs> Francis, despite the success of Apocalypse Now, it's not necessarily a financial success for him. He has more clout than he has money, necessarily. But, you know, Francis always likes to live beyond his means when it comes to these films. So, like I said, he buys this studio. He, the budget balloons from $2 million to $15 million to $23 million. Whoa. Whoa, as... What is this, Megapolis? What's going <laughs> on here? But he's just making the sets more lavish. He's buying miniatures. He's harvesting neon, like for the <laughs> for the signage. I'm not even kidding. <laughs> yeah, and uh, one fact I wasn't really going to read it, but you brought up the neon thing. They the way he wanted the light to look, they actually had to invent like a new style of neon tubing oh that was God, not the standard one, and it was like a little, <laughs> I think, a little smaller because I don't know, I don't, I'm not technical enough into film to to know exactly yeah. why, but that costs a lot of money, obviously, as you can imagine. <laughs> so crazy. He asked the staff at Zoetrope to take a reduced payroll to help make this film. <laughs> So, sorry. I, when I read my notes, I, I, I want to laugh because some of the some of the not not laugh like ha ha he's an idiot. Laugh like I love this man kind of way. Yeah, yeah. Mike, you've been to Vegas a lot. I know that. Uh, so have I. And <laughs> one of the sets that people often made fun of is like he rebuilt McCarran Airport, which is an actual airport that he could have shot at. He rebuilt no. it. The, he built that jet. Everything there. Yep. He, yeah. he had built so it could be on that stage, so it could have that look. But when the man has a dream, he has a dream. I mean, it's in a way, it's so amazing to watch this and be like, this is all on a set? Like, he's not shooting on, what is it, Friedman Street? Is that the, is that the yeah, street? Yeah, at a certain I point. Just, I was just there. I was just there, and I was like, this looks... I mean, granted, it's supposed to be the 80s, but I was like, this looks fucking real as can be. Um, the traffic, as far as extras in the in the shots, is unbelievable. Like, how do you fake this? Like, it feels so... At times, it feels like there's no way that they didn't, like, just steal some of these shots on the street. Uh, I know it's notoriously hard to get, or at least was hard, to get permits to shoot in Vegas. Um, not until, like, they remade the Oceans movies, I feel like, they, they get permission but like that could have been a factor, but like the airport is the, is just like, it's the coup de gras, right? Because it is the ultimate, like going the extra distance. (laughs) (laughs) I don't even have the words right now, you know, because again, so authentic and just so unnecessary. That's the thing. It's like so unnecessary, but what it does is like, 
it kind of like encapsulates the whole movie like that, right? Like if you know that everything is pretend, then it feels more together. Like it feels more cohesive. You know, it would probably be jarring if all of a sudden at the end, the last five minutes are shot at a real airport, you know, like it just kind of fits better thematically. Overall. Yeah, no, I definitely get it. Like, it makes sense. I could just imagine the accountants at MGM at the time going crazy. And they actually did, because they dropped financing for the film. Coppola did not know <laughs> what he was going to do. I'm like, I have to read this. I don't know if you know this story. I'm pulling this straight mm. from the Wikipedia article. It is amazing I to me. I love, I love doing this show because I find these amazing stories. A Canadian real estate developer named Jack Singer big movie buff loves films loves like the old-fashioned movies he's golfing in palm springs and someone asks him if hey you want to tour some hollywood movie studios in la <laughs> he ends up touring zoetrope studios <laughs> and and hold on first, first i just gotta say i just gotta say i love francis because he's like Hell yeah, we're going to give tours. Like, any way we can make a buck. <laughs> so he decides to tour, or for some reason, he's touring Zootrip Studios. And again, I'm paraphrasing from a couple different internet sources, so I could be wrong, but this is the gist I get. He bumps okay, okay. into Francis. Oh. Francis tells him, oh, you know, they get to strike up a conversation. And he tells him, essentially, oh, we might have to shut down because MGM's pulling out. Jack Singer, this valuable, rich man, is like, hey, if I finance you, can I be a producer? <laughs> and Francis says, sure. So this random yep. dude starts financing the film. More on him wow. later. There's a lot of more on okay. them later in this story. <laughs> he'll, he'll circle back around. That is, that's such a Hollywood story kind of <laughs> deal where it's just like, from Francis's perspective, it's so funny because it's like, you know, he's his studio his his pictures over all this money all this time all this effort this vision this idea and the studio yanks it out from under it and i could just picture him like like walking zoetrope being like i'm gonna have to shut all this down all of this just like deep in thought and all of a sudden just bumps into a canadian billionaire <laughs> <laughs> and it's just like what are you doing here and he's like i always wanted to be in pictures well it's like you know what i got an idea how about you finish my movie? <laughs> but if there's something we learned, Mike, from the offer, and even the story of uh, him and Corman in the early days, it's like getting financing on the side, right? Like, that's yeah, Francis. Yeah. By hook or crook, he's going to find a way to make the film. I mean, you mentioned, you know, Corman, but like, even if you watch like Ed Wood, right? Like, he, he gets like uh, churches and dentists and like, he goes anywhere he can <laughs> to like scrape a buck, you know? So... That's always, that's part of the hustle. That's part of like doing it. And, and what's funny now is like nowadays you see like 10 different production company logos between uh, before movies, because it's like, those are all the financers and stuff. It's going to be so funny to watch Francis's next movie to go to Megapolis and just see Zoetrope presents. And like, that's it. That would be great. Well, that's great. But would it shock you if, we end up seeing a lot more if he needs more money to do this main oh, thing he thought of. Would, you know, it would embarrass me if George Lucas and Steven <laughs> Spielberg did not just step up and we see Amblin Entertainment presents and that kind of shit. Like, what the hell, guys? Like, where are you? Get involved. Like, I if I was sad. George, I would get in my F1 racer and 
cruise across the country and just pull up on set and be like, what do you need? And Mike, this film is so technical that I'm going to skip around a bit. So I'm going to tell more of the story of how it was made and the reception, and then we'll kind of circle back to technical aspect, music, things like that. So whatever, he makes the movie, not whatever, it's a huge effort. He makes the movie and he has his first print. He does a screening in San Francisco for the Paramount people. Oh, did I mention? Oh, sorry. I didn't mention this. He gets Paramount no. involved as a distributor. His old buddies at Paramount, he calls him. He's like, hey, Ooh. I'm financing the whole thing. I got that. All I need you to do is distribute it. They're like, all right, Francis, you've provided hits before. We're not putting huh. that much money in. We're putting distribution money in, but not production money. Let's do it, okay? Okay, okay. So there's no – Bobby Evans isn't there at this time I don't still think so. Chelsea. I was going to check that, but I'm not sure. Regardless, it's not a big – it's not a big uh, risk for Paramount at this point right, to, to, right. to just put out a Coppola film, right? So they think. Yeah. So, <laughs> so they hold a screening of the unfinished print in San Francisco in August of 81. A lot of the backers are there. Paramount is there. And they start to get cold feet. They don't like it so much. Mm. But they still schedule. All right. They say, okay. We want it released in February. It's August, mind you. And Francis is like, I don't know about that, you know? There was disagreements on that side. Some people said, oh, did they they probably wanted it to compete for Oscars, but apparently the Paramount people kind of didn't believe in it, so I read some places that said they might have wanted to bury it. Maybe the DVD will give Mm. us the full story of what happened there. Point is, things break down with Paramount. You're going to love this, Mike. One of the reasons things break down is that in January of 82, Coppola still hasn't finished it, but he, without Paramount's permission, schedules a premiere at Radio City in New York. You know, brings everyone in, flies everyone in, and that screening didn't go over too well. Paramount gets pissed, two poor screenings in a row, you know, pretty quickly, and they're like, listen, man, we can't do this. You're too erratic. Like, this is, we don't know where this movie's going. We don't really understand it. We tried to work with you. But at this point, if you're going to be pulling bullshit like this, we're out, Francis. Wow. Yeah. Like, I'm surprised he pulled that when he was in. I mean, I could understand him feeling, like, desperate and, like, this could be the big move that saves the picture. Like, he's he's got that spirit that's almost Mm -hmm. his downfall, right? Where he's like, all we need is one big idea and we can save the picture and, like, it'll be great. And, uh... Not always. Mike, you're definitely right that we need to watch the special features. I need to read a little bit. I want to revisit this. Um, Again, it might just be a behind the scenes of One from the Heart or the making of One from the Heart, something along those lines. Yeah. Because there are too many gaps in the stories I'm seeing in terms of exactly what you're saying. Why did Francis decide to do this? Why are all these companies pulling out? Ultimately, you might see a reason as why, but it's getting bad press is the point. Francis, in all his glory... Gets a deal with Columbia Pictures to distribute the film. So three major studios <laughs> now, this has gone through. I think that's pretty awesome. Unfortunately, it is released. And we might say this a lot on the program. Well, we, there are two things we're going to say on the program a lot, I think. The film that saved Zoetrope Studios and the film that killed Zoetrope Studios. Wow. This was a film that killed Dojo Studios and Francis yep. personally. People were calling it one through the heart. That, 
that's the reception it got. People hated it. It was released in only 41 theaters. It grossed $389,000. Total gross $600,000 through its whole run, but on a $26 million budget at the time. Not good, Francis. Not good. Damn. That is crazy. There, there is some fascinating material here in the DVD as well. And this is written by Francis in 83. Like, I'll save it for the behind the scenes episode, but I can't wait to dig into this back matter and find out like the whole story here and, and like do it investing. Almost, almost want to be like um, private investigators and be like, put, put together the oral history of one from the heart or something like you see on uh, Reddit. That's exactly what we need to do. Mike, a hundred percent. We need to do that. So, so we'll take our time and we'll do a deep dive on production here. I do want to bring up our friend Jack Singer again. Okay. Francis has to declare bankruptcy. Whoops. The studio has to <laughs> declare bankruptcy. He's in Whoa. debt. This is an absolute disaster, which again is part of the reason I believe this is only in theory. I think we'll get to the bottom of this at some point. Part of the reason there's only one cut of this. Reason, oh, okay. reason one. Obviously, it wasn't received well. They probably didn't think there was a market for it. Reason two, he has to sell off his assets, including assets for the movie. Jack Singer mm. ends up owning Zoetrope Studios. Whoa. He's rich, so I understand how he got here, but he's a fan of Hollywood. And, and the studio ends up, he gets the keys, and it's his. This is the what? only film that Francis ever shot at the Hollywood Zoetrope Studios. That's insane. So basically, this guy, like... I mean, I don't know. Is he still around? I mean, but he owns one from the heart. Like, he has the negatives. Like, is that a possibility that the problem where he's running into? But I don't know, but I think you might be right. I, I Who knows? They might have seized all the assets and, he, and there might Whoa. that might be there. I have not heard that. We're going to have to, again, do a bit of a deep diving on that at some point. Jeez. So he ends up opening the studio as Hollywood Center Studios keeps the studio running yeah he upgrades the features and it becomes one of those studios that like you could rent if you're shooting yeah yeah okay that's smart uh he ended up passing away at the age of 95 in 2013 so long life but this is how this random dude ends up being a studio impresario i think it's pretty cool that is amazing it's like hey uh yeah, you can just fall into anything, I guess. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't a very large studio. Like, you know what I mean? It's like probably one or two things could be shot there at a time, but it's still a studio. Remember, he put an original $8 million, $9 million investment, I believe. Sold it in 2017 for $200 million. So, wow. He made a buck on it. Yeah, more than that. Oh, wow. That's, yeah, pretty cool. Wow, that's a crazy story. That's, that's. That's wild. Love it. So the one thing I'll mention again, Francis said, which doesn't make sense to me since he did that premiere, but again, he was probably just trying to get investors, that he always felt like the film was a work in progress, that he was never able to really, truly do what he wanted to do with it. I think there's some story issues. I could see where people, I could see things that he might change around. I don't know. It's his thing to cut, and I hope he cuts it again. Yeah, I agree. I mean, although... It's sort of shot in a way where there's not any coverage, if you noticed. It's all long takes and lots of in-camera effects and all that kind of thing. So 
I really don't know what else you could do with this unless you reincorporate deleted scenes or like they say, like there's alternate takes or something like that, like doing that kind of thing. That's a really good point, Mike. I didn't think about that, but you're right. Like maybe there just isn't a lot to work with here. I mean, the only thing I could see doing is like remastering everything from the ground up as far as like the sound, the soundtrack, all the Foley sound, all that, and like trying to kind of like rematch everything, recolor time it. Um, like you could definitely restore it to a degree, but this is a tough one to be like, it's almost like a, a study in editing uh, is like, there's like non-editing going on here for this. Like it, when we get into more of like the, ba- the behind the scenes and stuff and the way they did shoot it and everything, like I think that was part of the philosophy of it was like, let's just do it live and we'll be capturing it on all of these cameras and, or at least like I think cutting between cameras like a television show and just what we get is what we get. Like what we have to work with is it. I remember in, in college, like my first student film did not have enough coverage and it, uh, it was, it felt very pretentious and boring. And so like, I learned my lesson then, but this is a, this is sort of a masterclass in not needing to cut, like the way that he composes shots and does his coverage and then like moves in the shot to another cover. And it's just very fascinating to watch. Yeah. And I think as we talk the production, that's totally going to make sense. I'm sure you know a lot of this, Mike, but uh, for the listeners out there, uh, this is what I was able to find regarding the production here. Again, as we mentioned, it's on the Zootrip Studios. A lot is happening at once. The sets are all built, so and people are moving through sets here and there. Tom Waits does the music, which is amazing. We know Tom Waits is in a lot of Coppola stuff, but yeah. what do you think of the score for this film? Not just the score, but... Uh, you know, he has a lot of um, duets with Crystal Gale, a famous musician at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just It's a very haunting love score, you know? Uh, so, yeah, what's your thoughts of, like, the Tom mm-hmm. Waits connection here? I mean, basically, this movie was scored in a jazz bar at 2 a.m. for the most part. You know, and at one point, they opened a door, and there's, like, a musical going on in the street and then they shut the door again and we're back sort of like in our little jazz bar uh, i like it you know it's very kind of melancholy at times but it just gives that sort of noir vibe mostly i don't know if it i think it's a little on the nose at times like but i think that's part of the idea of the movie it, it, you know like uh, we're never to forget the state of this couple's relationship and i think the music does the best job reminding us of that the whole time yeah, I think the movie is pretty on the nose at times, and that's on purpose. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, he, actually, he was at Zootrip Studios writing this, while uh, Dean Tavalaris, who is one of Coppola's guys, um, he's the production designer, art director, you know, sort of responsible for the look and feel. I do definitely want to give him a shout-out on this film. I know he worked on The Godfather, yeah. but, I mean, this one, <laughs> the dire- art direction should get top billing, right? They actually worked in offices next to each other, and they would just inspire each other. Uh, so a lot of the music was inspired by the art direction. A lot of the art direction was inspired by the music. They were sort of working hand-in-hand in just the feel for this film. I thought that was pretty cool. You rarely see that, because you usually see like nice. music happening after art direction, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I like that, too. I mean, that it makes sense um you know because then it can kind of help directing as well i mean and you can you can write music to a scene or you can craft a scene to a song and in this 
type of movie, the way that it's kind of like dream logic, I feel like it's it's successful in that way. Like that's kind of cool. I like I like hearing that. This though might might be my favorite Coppola effect. Definitely top five favorite Coppola effects of all time. So Whoa. he directed the majority of the film in a like a aluminum or tin whatever trailer sort of in the middle of all the sets he called it the the silver fish it had a bunch of obviously monitors a kitchenette an espresso machine and a jacuzzi he would direct through a loudspeaker that went to each of the like oh set one francis's voice here set two francis voice i think because they were moving between sets and he thought like you know, don't disturb mm-hmm. the sets with, you know, he was so he imagine him in this like control center, this wow. big trailer control center. It makes me think of like the Truman show. Oh, yeah. Like, he's the <laughs> he's the man in the moon. and He's just like controlling everything that's happening. Ironically, this was a lot like Dracula in a sense that he had just done Apocalypse Now and he wanted to show, oh, let me shoot everything on a studio and let me kind of show a new way of movie making that's more budget-friendly. Again, sort of backfires. But it it was this electronic cinema process. He edited on tape and almost right away. So the things would come into his nerve center and he would cut it almost instantly and say, okay, let's try this. And let me play it back. You know? I mean, I think we see that a lot more today on like TV stuff, and but certainly not on film in the early 80s, you know? Oh. No, not on film in the early 80s, but like, I know, like, just by listening to like a lot of Kevin Smith stuff in the past, like, that's how he cut, because now that it's digital, I mean, that's the whole thing George was was moving towards, you know, so like, the idea of instant, instant movie kind of thing. So it's like, I've shot my thing, I put it in the computer. And that night, I like, I've already cut like, a quarter of my movie, and we're good to go, like just being able to work at the speed of thought. And Somewhat relatedly, so I don't want to confuse people, because again, I'm not technical, so I'm probably using a little shorthand here. He also used video a lot for uh, the storyboard. He did a visual storyboard. He would film it out. He would film it out on tape, then play it back to the cinematographer, essentially, and say, I want it like this, you know. Again, I'm oversimplifying, but that is another tool he used to save apparently money and time. I don't know if it did. And Mike, you mentioned sort of the TV quality of it. I think he means more of a fluid motion of production, right? Let's It's not, let's pick yeah. up things and move to this set. Let's pick up things and move to this country, which a lot of his films were. It's like, let's just go, essentially. And, and I kind of wanted to uh, confirm, like, what it was actually shot on. I don't know film enough. Maybe you, you're better than me. There's this great website that I found called shotonwhat.com. And literally will tell you what everything is shot on. So it says, one from the heart. And again, if you don't know Mike, I totally understand. This is like really in the weed stuff. One from the heart was shot using Araflex 35 BL camera and Cook Super Cine Veritol 25 250 millimeter, blah, 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 the lens and all that stuff. Okay, so Araflex are film cameras. So I don't think they were making video cameras then i mean that was all like panasonic i think and things like that uh but it's possible he had like video assist you know which is like when you're shooting in the camera and you have the monitor on top of it you know like you see that a lot of times on like the tonight show where they cut to like the camera operator and he's got a little box so i think he was incorporating that into 
the production style so that the cameraman didn't necessarily have to look down the barrel of the of the eyepiece. He could actually like hold the camera and look at the video assist monitor as he was shooting, as opposed to like it being in Video Village back where only Francis is. That makes more sense. Thank you for enlightening me on that. So I misspoke. He's not shooting on video, obviously. This is this is the early eighties. But he is Or tape. Tape. tape he's tape. not using yeah. tape. Yes, he's yeah. not using tape. But he's using sort of that tape system where you're right, he's getting yeah. it in his monitor in the silverfish and he's sending it back to the cameraman that way, the way he wants it, which is interesting. Like yeah. it's crazy kind of. Yeah. Yeah, it's an extra step, but like that's how you get what you want, I guess. I mean, but it's wild to think of him in like this as this like isolated Howard Hughes director all by himself with all these monitors just like yelling at people through megaphones and like telling them where to go and what in to do jacuzzi. and he's just like in his jacuzzi like Biff and Back to the Future 2 just watching it all on a bunch of monitors. <laughs> I'm sure he wasn't like always in the hot tub, but like it's just weird <laughs> that he had a hot tub. It is weird, and this—I think the overall point is again, this research has given me more questions than answers, and it is desperately in need for a deep dive. Yeah, well, this this has an audio commentary by Francis, so that's a whole episode in and of itself. Wow. Yeah, we got to do like an audio commentaries lap in general. That'll take us forever, too. Right. It's going to be awesome. Woo! So I feel like we've confused you enough. Let's just get into talking more about the cast and the mo- and the movie itself here. Yeah. Um, yeah, we will take our time and do a deep dive of the production of this because it's so fascinating. But our leads here. First, Frederick Forrest. Oh. I couldn't tell yeah. you this person's name. I know I'd seen him in a lot of couple of things. For me, he'll always be a chef or the chef in a Apocalypse Now. I love him in that. Yeah. The only reason I remembered his name uh, is because he is the dad in Valley Girl that yeah. owns the like health food store and everything. And he's like smoking weed in the bathroom. And I was like, holy shit, that's the guy from Apocalypse Now. This guy rules. Like, I don't know. I don't know his career like at all, really, except for those three movies. But like, man, is he great? He's in a lot of Coppola stuff. Like he's in a lot of Coppola stuff, which I did not. I had seen him here or there. I definitely knew him from Valley Girl because I came to that conclusion, too. I was like, wait a minute. Is this? Oh, shit, it's the chef from Apocalypse Now. He's apparently in the conversation and Tucker, which is interesting. Cool, cool. We definitely have to rewatch those. He's in The Two Jakes, which I know is one of your favorite films of all time. I've never... Uh, what? Why would you say? I've never joking. seen that movie. <laughs> Although that is like the sequel to Chinatown. I know. And if you, if you ask me, you know, there were supposed to be three, not to digress, but there were supposed to be three Chinatowns. There was going to be uh, Water land and transportation i believe were the three themes of the three movies and i believe in my heart of hearts someone got a hold of the third script and turned it into who framed roger rabbit because what's that one transportation yeah it's about how the guy buys up all of the trolleys and the free transportation and he opens up he wants to open up a freeway i mean that's that's my crazy internet theory is that roger rabbit comes after the two jakes which comes after china let's do roger rabbit on third time's a charm and prove it Oh, believe me. I mean, I want anything, anything I can to do that. But we already got a April Fool's episode planned. Hush, hush. Terry Gar as Franny. Terry Gar. 
underrated career. I cannot like stress this enough. But first, Mike, you might have known this. Mm-hmm. Did you see how many Elvis films she's in? Get out of here. No. I, I knew she was in at least one. I think we've seen it already. She's I'm in like now. six or seven, dude. She was just like uncredited in all of them. I have fun in Acapulco, Kissing Cousins, Viva Las Vegas. Yeah, that's the one we just that's the one we just watched, uh, Fun in Acapulco. I knew she was in, in that one. What a way to go. Ra- roused about Clambake. Like, she was just on the wow. Elvis production team as just like background actors here or there like what a start to a career huh that's amazing mostly so as a lucky. dancer Good for her. yeah that's really well, cool you know she got she got to learn on sets and see elvis and yeah that's awesome yeah she's in tons tons uh, of stuff the 10 or 11 year run of terry gar between the mid 70s and mid 80s let me run through it yeah she's in the conversation with francis of course young frankenstein Oh God with George wow. Burns. I don't know if you've seen that one. Yep. It's, yep. Oh I yeah. Like oh yeah. It was for some reason when I was a kid, I was a big George Burns fan. <laughs> Eight year old, love that eighty year old. <laughs> Close Encounters, One from the Heart, Tootsie, Mister Mom, and After Hours, all in that like ten or eleven years now. Like no one talks about Terry Gar as a legend. No, and it's too bad. I mean, also unfortunately, she's had some health problems recently. I'm mean, not just recently, but like in the past, like. 15, 20 years, yeah. I think, you know, so, like she's been out of the public eye. She's diagnosed with multiple sclerosis in 2002. So like, it's really too bad, but like, I feel like everything that she did was just a banger. You know, I remember Mr. Mom. Oh my God. That was like, that was on repeat when I was growing up as a kid. Like she fucking like reminded me of my mom, like looks kind of looks like her too, actually. So great in this. So great in this. Mr. Mom, like, quick 30-second segue. I don't think people understand the impact that that movie had at the time today because it seems so silly. Like, my mom still, like, not in a making fun of way. Like, she'll be like, oh, a lot of, a lot of uh, you know, dads work, work from home now. They're like Mr. Moms. Like, like, people from the 80s still use that in terminology despite it being incredibly archaic. Yeah. It's not a really good podcast idea. It's more like a series. But one of my um, dream projects is to do, like, that era of film of, like, women going to work. Oh, like like Working Girl. Working Girl. And the one, what's, the one, what's the one where Diane Keaton quits exactly. her job, goes to Connecticut, baby boom. Ba- baby boom, <laughs> And she exactly. opens up, like, an, a, an applesauce fucking company or something. I can't. <laughs> A baby food company. I love that era. Like great triple feature too, Mr. Mom, Baby Boom, and uh Working Girl, right? Like that that's kinda cool. <laughs> but yeah. Anyway. Love yes. It. Terry Gar, amazing. Uh some people who watch Friends might know her. She plays Phoebe's mom in that show. Spoiler alert. <laughs> um mm. So I, so I love her from the this is the stupidest movie, but there's this movie, Mom and Dad Save the the earth mm-hmm. i think yeah. and she's the mom yeah and she's the great she's just like walking through that movie like what is going on here but like she is upstaging jeffrey jones she's upstaging john lovitz like she is just like the queen in that movie it's so funny so good so good and uh, if we don't get to say it style icon in this film the overall oh, glasses yeah. look when she's like setting up the um the diorama for the travel agency whatever like 
You could go out on the streets mm-hmm. of Brooklyn in that today. Well, what's funny is like Raul Julia definitely sees the like she's all that in her because when we first see her, she's in the overalls with the glasses and she's kind of like quote unquote frumpy looking. And Great then like there. a scene or two later, it's the 4th of July and she's out in that red hot dress, you know, and the tiny little purse. And she's just like, looks like a firecracker. Like it's amazing. And you mentioned him, Raul Julia. If we're going to go another rant. Oh, Oof. Such a good actor. I, I think so oh. underappreciated today. Brian. <laughs> Brian. This is my Raul Julia. Oh, <laughs> that's all I got. But I had to try it out. He played uh, Dracula on stage, as you showed me. I mean, tremendous stage actor. Just found that out uh, this week, actually. I should hand in my horror card. Or maybe I should get another hole punched in it for, for learning this. But, um, you know... Dracula just making careers its entire time as a character on on stage. So like Bella, Bella Lugosi personified the role on stage. And then they took that interpretation and made the first film with it, okay. like doing Bella's version. And, you know, Frank Langella revived the role of Dracula. And then he went on to play it in, in uh, Universal's revival of dracula like in the 70s or 80s and then after him it was raul julia played dracula on stage and it was his breakout performance so like dracula just like making careers its entire time as a character and like i wish i could see raul julia play dracula because it it clicks so perfectly in my head especially watching all these draculas and the monsters that made us and stuff and like it, it just makes so much sense that he would be such an amazing... He's threatening, he's sexy, he is seductive, but dangerous. Like, he's got every quality that you would need to, like, pull that role off perfectly. Yeah, your ideal Dracula, like, in the traditional form of the character, is exactly what you said. You could see why women would fall in love with him and why people would fear him in general in the same breath, right? Not, not Earl Julia, I don't feel that about it. Like, you could see how he could do that no, performance. No, no, yes, yes. <laughs> uh, we lost him way too soon. I know he died in his 50s, <sighs> and it's not like he died in his 20s, but I can only imagine the career he would still be having today. Uh, it was most yeah. mostly on stage for a while, but once he started to break out in movies, again, he, he was gone right when he was hitting that really big A-list, and right when people were realizing, like, this dude was fire. I think, I think people who knew acting and knew him, knew that he was amazing, and he's amazing in this. But maybe, you know, he wasn't as mainstream again as De Niro or Pacino. It took him a little bit longer, but man, when he hit, he hit. If I'm not mistaken, like most people probably know him as Gomez Adams. Absolutely. Right? From, the, from the Adams family stuff. Um, unfortunately, his final role was that of M. Bison in the Street Fighter movies. You know, that... Uh, <laughs> yeah, that one wasn't great, real. but at least he was cast as a villain in a big budget Hollywood production. And, and look, like, he brought it to that role. No one can say that he didn't go there to play because he was... You can just see it on his face. It just looked like he was having as much fun as he could. He was the best part of that movie. And just back to (laughs) Gomez quickly, it's such an iconic role. It's a big reason. I know, you know, Wednesday just came out and uh, Luis Guzman, uh, which I love Luis Guzman. But it's, again, a different kind of tone for that one. Boogie Nights. What's up with Boogie Nights, Gomez? (laughs) But Gomez Adams, Raul Julia's performance, essentially, it's this impactful that it essentially changed the role to a Latino role. Yeah. 
going forward right yeah. like like no I right mean, no one else can play that role unless you're a latin person even oscar isaac was the voice in the uh cgi one and and that's True. just because he did such a good job there just the original adam's family that's the original adam's family but like the 90s adaptations mm-hmm. uh were casted so well that they are better than they should be you know what I mean? Like, those are just stupid, yeah. silly movies, let's be honest. But uh, the casting is just so good. Angelica Houston and uh, Christopher Lloyd, all, all that. So, like, they exceed their expectations, and he's a big part of it. So, Mike, you mentioned his last on-screen role was technically the stupid Street Fighter one. But it really wasn't his last film yeah. role. Uh, recommendation okay. for you and anyone who wants to see this great actor work on film, and you, and you don't want to just watch one from the heart... He did a movie for HBO about the rainforest activist Chico Mendez. What was the oh. name? Uh, oh, The Burning Season. It's really oh. good. And he's really good in it. Yeah, I remember hearing about that. I was too, I was not into that stuff in 94. I was more into <laughs> Street Fighter and Van Damme and stuff. But okay, good. I, I'm going to have to put that on the short list because, you know, I almost mentioned that in jest because it's an unfortunate part of his uh, <laughs> trivia there, but like there's two, there's, well, there's more than two movies, but I want to recommend two movies that he's in that are like fucking flawless. Like I would call these perfect films. Uh, the first is moon over Parador. Mm. I don't know if you're familiar with that movie. I'm familiar. I've never seen it. Okay. Yeah. Richard Dreyfus. It's a Paul Marzuski film. I, I went on a big run of his movies a few years ago, tried to watch like everything that he was in. That is a fantastic comedy. It is just like ridiculous about like acting and revolutions. The other movie that I think would be a worthwhile watch that he's in is the Gumball Rally. And I would like to suggest that to our friends over at Too Fast Too Forever if they haven't watched it yet. So so the Gumball Rally is like the original Cannonball Run type of stuff. And like he's in that as well. That's a really cool movie uh, recommendation. But the big one I think is for me is was Moon Over Parador. Like that is just like a flawless film. I mean, I'll definitely check those both out. I haven't seen those, and I'd love to. Uh, we got some good Raul Julia uh, recommendations today. Again, one of the greatest, if not the greatest Latin actor of all time. Uh, one of the greatest actors to unfortunately never win an Oscar. I think he would have if he you know, would have been alive. But just in this limited performance today, as we're talking from one from the heart, knocks it out of the park. Yes. Oh my God. He's, he is the best in this movie. Like I, I can't stop smiling when he's on screen. Like he, he just soaks up everything and like regurgitates it in like the most like fascinating way. Like you could just feel him playing off the energy of everything in the scene is kind of what I'm trying to say. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know. I don't know where he gets this like magic from, but like it's impossible for me to like take my eyes off this guy in this in this particular movie. It's pure magic. And if the intention I was gonna say this for later, but if the intention was for them to create a character who came off as a bit of a phony or you know, traditionally in these stories, the girl leaves the guy for someone who's really not all there, and there's some elements of that, but Raul Julia is just so magical and so great. I know a lot of people were questioning why did she go back to uh, her original guy here because I, I would have just gone to Bora Bora with him. <laughs> Bora Bora. Yeah, I love that. He's uh, like, that's not what Bora Bora looks like. Two of my favorite scenes in the movie, uh, and like I love every scene, but like two of my favorite scenes is the one when, when Ray and Franny meet 
and they're and and they keep shooting uh in and out of the window display and the camera keeps moving in and out of the store like that's an incredible sort of moment between like because he's not even really picking her up you know it's just he's just sort of starting a conversation like on the strip like you would i guess you know like what are you doing in there and and it, it just feels so natural the way that they are conversing and i love how technical that scene is and then i love when she's looking for him because she gave away the matchbook of where he works and then she bumps into him at his other job as a waiter and he like basically quits to hang out with her and be with her and you know and like eat the food that he was supposed to be waiting on and so be, that is just like i love those moments i was afraid it was going to come off as creepy but he's just so charming yeah. he's able to needle that like really fine line between doing that and he's just so good at it I wanted more of him, honestly. There's something in general about this film that's so sincere. Like, Francis, I feel like, can't lie or something like that. And, like, this is proof that, like, every character in this movie feels genuine and sincere. And, like, you know, like, they have a history and, like, they're lived in and all that stuff. And, like, this is the first time we're meeting them. And you get the sense of them, like, almost immediately, you know, because, like, there is no malicious intent in any of this film whatsoever. You know, like there's nothing like bad things happen and it gets kind of dark and depressing at times. But like, ultimately it's a fairy tale love story about like this relationship enduring and them have them each straying on this one 4th of July night. It isn't like, Oh, they did a bad thing. You know, it's not taken as like a taboo or anything. It's just like, we'll get over there. Like we'll get through this. We've been through things and this is another thing. And like, it's just a, it feels like such a natural progression of a real relationship as opposed to something more manufactured, you know, for a movie or something. I, I love the way they explore the actual like boundaries and communication and things like that in this movie uh, through the relationships. I mostly agree. I actually do like the relationships in this movie a lot. I could see why people would be turned off by them a little bit. They seem like a bit of a toxic couple. They both meet people they have fun with. I think one more than the other, which, you know, I've tipped my hand there. And she ends up just going, Franny ends up just going back in with her toxic, uh, was it husband, right? Or boyfriend? I don't even remember. Boyfriend. Boyfriend, yeah. okay. She goes back with her toxic boyfriend in the end. And I don't know if he's really become a better person in the last 24 hours. He didn't want to lose her necessarily, but mm. are they going to improve? Like, I don't think this is the perfect love story at all. So I agree with that adamantly, but that doesn't bother me. I like seeing imperfect love stories. Like, I, again, we, I don't want to quote that I love this person because I don't love the human being, but I, I have enjoyed a Woody Allen film in the past from time to time. You know, I like Ed Burns movies. I like movies where imperfect couples do get back together because I believe there are more imperfect couples than perfect couples and relationships take work. And I like to think that they're now motivated to do work. But I know for a fact, because people have told me when I've recommended these kind of films, that toxic relationships turn them off and people returning to toxic relationships turn them off even more see i guess i guess i could see that now but while watching this like i said it didn't feel 
like mean. You know what I'm saying? Like I could see this being portrayed way more violently, way more maliciously, way meaner than it is here. It just felt like realistic in a sense that like couples fight, couples argue and couples get back together after they separate for a while or things that, you know, and I feel like he was just trying to get at the root of that more than saying um, we're stuck in a cycle of toxic behavior necessarily. Cause uh, you know, like it's, I mean, it's not just Hank, it's Franny too. Like, you know, she freaked out because he bought her the house. Right. And like, maybe that was with her money. Oh right! Never okay. mind. <laughs> One with her money. Two, he cheats. I forgot on, about he that. He cheats on her all the time. She briefly cheated on him once. You know, I, I'm, I'm not going to defend the actions of this couple. I'm not trying to do that either. I'm just trying to. I'm just trying to say that it. I appreciated how it felt more like a, like like a real relationship than than a phony movie kind of thing. You know, like it. There, there's more than one thing going on with them as opposed to like I feel. Uh, something more streamlined would be like one big issue is bothering them and that's why they split but no there's like a history going on and to be clear that's why i love it you know what i mean i love that there's yeah. this much drama i love that they're imperfect um and and i agree with you i don't feel like they're this movie is mean-spirited at all and there are elements if you were to just tell someone the story it would sound more mean-spirited than it is they have this huge fight they go out they bang other people they decide they miss each other they leave these other people and get back together. A lot of people would be like, that sounds like a nasty story. But it's not when you watch it. I mean, right. At least from my perspective, and I know yeah. your perspective. Yeah. Maybe part of it is like, you're so, at least I am so dazzled by the craft that, you know, maybe he could be telling any story and I'd be like, yeah, it's not so bad. I'd get back together with him or, her <laughs> or whatever, you know? Like, it's like if their life is, uh, you know, if they walk, around life looking at it like this like in with this this production value like okay i get it <laughs> and at the same time though i know part of my bias here with not liking the relationship is how much i love raul julia and his character and how yeah. i kind of wish he stayed on that plane honestly i know you're not supposed to root for that but again he was so endearing to me what would have been interesting too is if he was hank and Freddie Forrest played Ray. Ooh, I like that. Because then you could really be like, oh, I understand why someone would keep going back to this guy. <laughs> you know? Uh, Freddie, uh, like, Freddie's Hank is, he's a bit of a schmuck, I guess you could say, right? But he's like a lovable schmuck, too. Like, that's that's the thing. It's, it's very endearing at times. I don't know. And, he, and he's, he's very sorry for what he does, right? So, like, if he didn't talk all the time about trying to get her back, it would be one thing. But he's like, ah, man, I, I keep screwing up and I don't know what to do because all I want to do is keep us together. So there's something about that, too, that bit of charm to him. I don't want to forget to mention the other people in the cast because it's a very small cast. And by the way, it's a pretty short movie for a Coppola film. I think an hour, 30-something minutes, yeah. something like that. 100 minutes. There you go. So uh, Kinski, are, were you familiar with her? Yeah. I knew her from stuff she was was she like <laughs> mostly a model i haven't seen paris texas yet uh i have i have i got a copy that's cat, been like sitting cat in people the closet seen forever. that one cat people i might have seen cat people wow inland empire i mean i'm not seeing a lot of her movies no but i'm very familiar with her just not like through movies just like by her name i guess and this movie i've seen obviously but uh not 
a lot of these other ones. Weird. She was great in that, like, uh, character of uh, Layla. What is she, a dancer? Or, uh, mm-hmm. Circus performer, yeah. as she calls herself. Right. Shout out to Jordan with the circus. Yeah. Hank's sort of a misadventure while while his uh, girlfriend is away, right, with Raul Julia. Yeah. She seemed more realistic to me to, like, somebody you would have a one-night stand with. Not you personally, you know what I mean. Like, no, I hear it. The mean, character, no. the character, right? Like, just a, a Vegas performer, yeah. younger, dreamer, you know? When she says, run away with me, I know there's no shot that Hank wants to do that. Like, he's only tempted by her eroticism. Right. Uh, she seems like a wonderful person. I'm not saying it's her, but like, that's just Hank, you know. But when uh, Raul Julia Ray's character s- says that, uh, you know, I just felt like maybe just him and Terry Gar had such good energy, you know. But I did felt feel like Franny, you know, was more tempted than Hank was tempted to go on his adventure. Yeah, and I believe that Raul Julia meant it. Like, I believe yes. he wanted her. I mean, not that I didn't believe that, what is it, Layla? Yeah, Layla. Not that I don't believe her, but, like, that's not going to last. Like, I really feel like Ray and Franny had a shot, which was crazy. <laughs> I don't know if I was supposed to think that in the end. But it's interesting how they end. They both stray with people that ultimately they it's what they think they want, but not what they really want, right? Like, he he strays because he's like, man, I just, you know... I'm in like she's attractive, like she's physically attractive. That's what I like about the Natasha Kinski character. And then Franny, I feel, is more like, oh, he's so like he listens to me and he's so like emotionally like together. And he's with attractive, it, you, know? you know. And he's attractive too. <laughs> and you know all of it. And not and not and not that the Layla character isn't deep either, you know, like she comes out with like a lot of stuff too, but it just it just seems in the end like they get what they want and it's not really what they were looking for and so that's why they go back and maybe try again you know and try to reset and things like that but that's that's sort of the vibe i was getting between the contrast of their misadventures yeah no that's a really really good way to put it uh one or two more people i want to mention the friend is played by much younger than i'm used to uh laney kazan sorry maggie franny's friend we know her oh, okay so many you, you don't remember her she's in like no, I do. Yeah, yeah. Uh, my Big Fat Greek Wedding. Uh, oh, she's in some Sandler movie. I can't remember which one. <laughs> Saint Elsewhere originally. So good to see her here. Um, Harry Dean Stanton, of course, as Mo, the friend. Oh my gosh, with uh, with the hair and the style, Harry Dean style. In this <laughs> movie. I mean, I... and that's funny because I was wondering. I'm like. You know, he has a very distinct look. I wouldn't call him classically handsome. And I was wondering why uh, Franny hooked up with him or was, like, tempted to hook up with him, all that. I'm like, really? This guy? But then I read in the production notes that Rebecca DeMornay is, like, a small, has a small role in this. And mm-hmm. they were dating at the time for years, Harry Dean Stanton and Rebecca DeMornay. And I'm like, oh, okay. Oh. I guess he pulls it then. <laughs> Harry Dean Stanton. Jeez. Yeah, I guess so. And this is unlike almost any Harry Dean Stanton performance no, that I can, like, and maybe that's remember. why, Mike. Maybe that's why. Like, I'm thinking, like, oh, he doesn't seem like an attractive guy, but that's all his other performances are not attractive guys. Yeah, like, this one, he seems actually, like, happy and full of energy, <laughs> right? <laughs> like it's, I mean, I love what he does normally. I mean, Repo Man, one of my favorite of his performances, like, I just love the attitude that character has 
further showing us his chops here by playing kind of like a swinger almost like the way he's dressed in like his disco hair and his you know long pants or whatever like he just gives me like more of like that i'd, I'd be i feel like he's more of the creep yeah. in the in the friendship than uh than hank but like yeah this guy feels like like a johnny vegas sort of persona i do love too that like uh hank and him are best friends and he goes up to his apartment to accuse him essentially of trying to like make out with his girlfriend and then he ends up being like, yeah, she left me. And like, oh, stay the night. You know, like, they're, they're friends no matter what. So they clearly know what each other are about. And I thought that was cool. The relationships in this movie, again, between friends and stuff like that are really good. That's a beautiful sequence when when uh, when Hank goes to Moe's and they're talking and they sit on the couch. And then, like, the backlight turns on, I guess, and like we see through a sheet, there's another set behind them and Terry Gar's talking with her friend and then they talk back and forth and then the camera pans and like now we're in Terry Gar's, like her, uh, her friend's apartment, like Maggie. It's like, what the hell? I feel like this is real incredible like staging and timing and, and all of this stuff is just like blowing my mind. I, I had to rewind like several times to the beginning of sequences to be like, did he cut here? Like, how did the camera move? Like, what, you know, what is going on exactly? Because I'm always, I just kept getting blown away by the technical, like, the technicality of this movie. It's so cool. I, I uh, dated a girl in college once who was a theater director. And I remember seeing one of her plays and she was in the audience and I was like really confused. I was like, oh, I thought, you know, when I think directors, I think film directors, you know, and I would think they'd be backstage. And it's like, no, one, the staging and work is already done. You know, there's nothing really you can do at this point. And, yeah. and you know, you kind of want to see the overview of how things go from the perspective of the stage. I bring it up now. Thinking about Francis and his cockroach trailer. <laughs> <laughs> seeing it maybe from that perspective and really more as a theater director right we keep talking about staging 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 and maybe it is best that he's just the eye in the sky sort of staging things from that mm -hmm. above view like that it's not a play because this would not work as a play unless you had like a really dynamic studio set like Maybe a theater in the round or something. I don't know. Or the opposite, right? Like everyone's right. in the middle or something. But it's just, I think Francis going back to some of those roots that he talked about being in film school and, and relating more to the theater actors and the, the people who were putting on productions and that, and that way. Again, I think he nails a lot of it more in Dracula. But in terms of the look of this film, what an ambitious effort that started as a $2 million romantic comedy. Just people overuse the term today, neon soaked, right? How many of our horror films today are neon soaked? This is, yeah, this film is yeah. truly, truly neon soaked. Yeah. You make a good point there. Like, you know, people, when Nicholas Winden Refn came on the scene they, and, and, or at least later on when he became more predominant in America, he got a moniker. I think he might even dubbed himself. He's so pretentious of neon noir. Yeah. Right. Like he makes noir films, but they're, they're neon drenched and you know, they're 
electric noir and that kind of thing. Um, but that's what this is. Like, just because it's sort of on the happier side doesn't mean it, it doesn't have like noir elements, like the story for certain, like the characters, I think a lot, like even though they're not criminals, I feel like they, they're in Vegas. They exist sort of on the peripheral of like a larger organism or something, or they're part of this microcosm. Like you could just feel like, I don't know, they feel like an appendage of the city, um, you know, and that is a very noir kind of thing. You know, like the city is the character. I feel its heartbeat as I take a step on the avenue, you know, my feet are at the beat of its heart, that kind of shit. Like there is energy like that here. And, you know, the neon for sure. I mean, not just Vegas, but like, that's a good way of getting it in there in the first place. But he really utilizes the neon for dramatic effect, just like, perfectly like when they go when they go to freddy's junkyard and there's just the there's the neon there uh reflections when when the lady's doing the the dance in the glass and it's all like it's basically just lights it's just a light show gorgeous stuff and how about just where their house's placement is like in quite literally the (laughs) backdrop of the vegas strip and we're talking about the fourth of july there's fireworks going off there's parties going off and while it's dreamscapey as you said and there's dream logic it's not insane dream logic if anyone's ever been to las vegas like las vegas has that 24 hour you know light heartbeat feel again especially at night when everything like it's i'm not saying it's the greatest place on earth not like that but it's like one of these (laughs) places that if you dropped an alien here they'd be like what the f is this like people behave the way they shouldn't be behaving Things are looking the way they shouldn't look. There's a Statue of Liberty next to an Eiffel Tower. Not in this era, but I'm saying, like, there's a pyramid, you know what I mean? Like, so you're right. The city is a character as well here. And we don't usually, in films, see what the inhabitants of Las Vegas are like. Most of the films are really, truly about people who visit for a weekend. It's almost like visiting (laughs) space. So it was cool to see that side of things. And, like, a junkyard in New York would just look like a junkyard, but a junkyard in Las Vegas would have neon, you know, because that's what they're throwing out. I I don't know if it would be on, but you know what I mean? Like, the settings were so good in that respect. Um, I I just want to make a quick comment. Uh, The house, they're like, oh, she's like, I don't know if I want to buy this house. I'd buy that house. That house is, like, awesome. In, like, 2022, and again, I'm living in a one-bedroom apartment. That house seems pretty big and pretty nice. (laughs) Yeah. Look, look good from where I was sitting. So we've been dancing around stuff with the film. Um, what did we miss, Mike? What do you want to talk about regarding mm. just like scenes and moments in One from the Heart that really stuck out to you? So, I mean, just the opening title sequence when we're panning across the sand and the dunes and it turns into the shape of a woman's body, you know, multiple. And then like carvings in the sand and the footsteps. And it's almost like... The sands of Vegas are the sands of time and he's pulling them back and revealing all the old buildings and the architecture and stuff. And it almost felt like, you know, I said it definitely feels like a dream. But at first I was like, I'm falling into like almost a nightmare of some (laughs) kind, right? Like the the imagery is very kind of like like post-apocalyptic at first until the until it like clicks to life and like, you know we're in the movie proper and stuff, but that opening title sequence was like, I was like, Oh, this could, can go either way. Like, uh, you know, this could either, this could go the way it went, which is a little more of like a normal dream, or it could 
become a nightmare like a David Lynch dream, you know? Yeah, no, either way. And I'm glad you're bringing up Lynch because you're right. This is like a positive side, largely, of a Lynch coin. Yeah. It's funny to me that David Lynch stuff gets so much praise, but this in its time got shit on. Maybe it's because Coppola's reputation. Yeah. I don't know. Well, I, I think it's it's two or three things. Like, first, it's like the industry's like, well, there's already a David Lynch. We don't have room for more weirdos. Like, he's providing enough kind of crazy content for us to sink our minds into that we don't we don't need Francis giving us his interpretation of that. And we certainly don't want George Lucas taking his stab at it with THX one one three eight, which I think is what led to the meeting between him and David Lynch for Return of the Jedi is like, David Lynch was probably like, who's George Lucas? He sat down and saw THX and he's like, well, this is actually pretty interesting. I could kind of get behind this. And then he shows up at Star Wars and saw a bunch of teddy bears running around in the woods, <laughs> right? Like probably turned them off. Uh, but they all have something like this in them. And I'm just glad that he got it out at some point, somehow, in some way. And you're right. It's just so ahead of its time, maybe. Ahead of its time, I think if a director named John Smith shoots this and they have no idea who it is and there's none of like the background of this is failing and there's not studio people bad-mouthing it, I think people see it more for the masterpiece that it is at the time. Is it for everybody? No. But this is truly a film nerds movie. 3.5 on Letterboxd when the oh. movie was panned for years. So the fact that it could get a 3.5 with that reputation... It, it tells you something, right? Like, I think if this is released yeah. today, it's it's a four. The story, which I like, I know you like, is obviously the worst part of the film. And again, I'm not saying it's a bad part of the film, but when you think about the masterpiece that's unfolding around them, I think, right. I think you said something, I, I keep thinking about it. The story could have been anything, and this is still a movie that's worth talking about <laughs> and noting. But I'm glad that it's about love, because he's able to weave that into the dancing. And I know we're bouncing back and forth. But again, with the circus girl, what's the line she says? When it's obvious that, that Hank's not going to like run away with her. She's like, oh, I think you can close your eyes and a circus girl will disappear. And <laughs> she has such a complex understanding of who she is in that world and to this guy. And she doesn't want it to be true, but she's probably lived this a million times. That... I don't think the story is as hollow as I've heard some people say. And maybe it gets drowned out by the neon of the way it looks. I don't know. I'm going back and forth here. Why do you think some people don't hmm. like this film? So just going from like first going from the story elements, it is kind of rote, you know, like there's only so many. It seems crazy to say this, right? But I feel when it comes to movies in Vegas, you're either making a crime film or a love story. Every once in a while, you'll get pay it forward. <laughs> that took place in Las Vegas. Okay. But for the most part, it's like we just need something to hang to hang this on so that we could do what we really want to do, which is uh, revolutionize how movies are actually shot, right? Which is number two as to what turned people off is like, this doesn't look like a movie I watch. This doesn't look like a normal movie I go see in theaters. Like, there's a subconscious thing that happens when you haven't, you know, I'm not trying to sound like pretentious at all. Right. Mike, but Mike, like, wait, not to cut you off, but we host the Francis Ford Coppola podcast. I know. I know. But just by saying like, <laughs> because I've been to school and learned about like filmmaking. Okay. Like 
I'm I'm aware of what's going on when I'm watching this movie. Oh, I see what he's trying to do. I get it. Okay, I can go with this. But the average moviegoer, it's a subconscious thing. Like it's why you have so much coverage, and it's why in the 2000s and so forth, like the Michael Bayification of filmmaking took it overboard and there's a cut like every three seconds and there's too much coverage is because like subconsciously that's what the mind is looking for. It, it, it needs those kinds of things to fill in certain gaps. So I think the audience at the time and even an audience today, uh, this is too sophisticated in a lot of ways, the way that it's shot, like too many long takes for the general public, not enough edits, not enough coverage, you know, not enough, uh, complexity with the story. It's too much about the maison scene for the general public. That's what I think. That's Those are my two main things. It's like, we've seen the story a lot and I'm distracted by the filmmaking. You know, I think to, I think you're absolutely right. That makes a lot of sense. I think today too, you said you didn't want to sound pretentious, but imagine a lay person. <laughs> I don't know how to say it. someone who doesn't listen to film podcasts. So probably one of the plebeians. Yes. yes. <laughs> so probably not someone uh, to quote the squid and the whale Philistines, right? Like, I don't want to be like, Oh, that's for the Philistines. Mm. But I picture two different conversations. Well, I'm with film guys. I'm in Brooklyn at a party and they say, what's your favorite Coppola film? Like I guarantee if I say, the Godfather, the Godfather 2, they might be like, oh, really? Like, even though look, those are amazing movies, I think you and I like land sort of right. in between. But if I say one from the heart, they're like, oh, shit, you know? Like, with, with certain yeah. crowds, that makes sense. And honestly, someone could say that to me and I'd be like, that's a great choice. But if I'm at um, Christmas dinner with my family and my mom or my aunt is like, oh, what's your favorite Coppola movie? And I say one from the heart, they're going to say, what? Not the Godfather, yeah. Not, yeah. you know what I mean? Like, not Apocalypse Now? Yeah, yeah. I envision a scenario that I wish still existed is when, like... Now, I always wanted to work at a video store, but I never did. But, like, you know, going to a video store and and knowing... I actually did. What am I talking about? I worked at Tower Video for a while. So there was this one woman that would come in, and I just would know her tastes after a while, and I could recommend shit to her every once in a while, you know? And she'd be like, oh, that was a good one. That was not a good one, this and that. And... I think of that scenario where like you work at a video store and like in comes the Friday nighter and it's like, Oh, recommend a Coppola movie. Oh, have you seen the apocalypse now? You know, it's got action. It's got adventure. Uh, I think you'll love it. Good acting. And then you see the guy who comes in almost every day. Mm. Right. And it's like, right. What haven't I seen yet? What can you, what can you feed me? And it's like one from the heart is for you, buddy. Like you're the film guy. I see you in here every day. You know, I know you watch like, three, four movies a week or whatever, like one from the heart is for you. So that is just amazing that Francis has that sort of wide of a gulf between his, uh, his viewership, if you will, because I guarantee there are people who love the Godfather, love it. Like one of my brothers that you've met, like super into his Italian heritage, loves the fucking Godfather, could quote it, okay? I doubt it. <laughs> he even knows this fucking movie exists. Great. That's what I'm talking about. That that hit it home for me. You're so right. And then I want to make clear on this show, and I know you're in the same camp with me, Mike, one is not better than the other. You'll hear some podcasts that'll tell right. you, oh, this, you know what I mean? No. One is not better than the other. I love The Godfather. You love The Godfather. But we also both love 
one from the heart. You can ha- you can love yes. both these things. I hate people who don't think you can. You're not a hipster for loving one from the heart. You're not too mainstream for loving the Godfather. When I've told people about this podcast and they almost look at me like, oh, okay, Coppola. And not in a way that's like, he doesn't deserve it, but it's more like, oh, you're not doing like a niche horror podcast or a niche this or niche that. Because that's mm-hmm, the hottest mm-hmm. thing. Not to go on a rant, but like, niche does very yeah. well in podcasting. Niche is very hot to do. Nerd culture is big right now. And again, I'm not against nerd yeah. culture. Coppola is not very nerdy on the outside of things. But then you talk about, again, films like Dracula. And for film nerds, films like this. And he is incredibly nerdy on the other side of the, the spectrum, too. What Again, what a great yeah. catalog for a filmmaker. And this is just... An awesome addition. I, I know it didn't do well originally, but if you're still, like, if you're from the 80s and you briefly heard about this film and never gave it the time of day, and you really want to see what goes on in the mind of Francis Ford Coppola, especially visually, watch this movie. Definitely. Absolutely. Yeah, it's amazing, like, that this is the same guy who did, you know, Rain People, Right, like that, he could be so kind of quiet and reserved and do things like you even see it in The Godfather, like the Johnny Fontaine scene when he comes to talk to The Godfather. Like, I think perfectly encapsulates Coppola's range as a director and, furthermore, like his his body of work. The scene starts off so quiet and so intimate and so kind of small, like half of his movies, and then it explodes into almost violence with the Godfather shaking him and, and like that. And that's like most of his other movies, you know? And I feel like to me, that really kind of hits me like in a way where it's like, wow, he, uh, he just constantly seems to be true to himself and trying to get out everything that's in him. And, you know, people always just want him to stick with the Godfather. When are you making Godfather three, why don't you do Godfather three? And it's like, well, because like, I'm trying to show you I'm more than just the Godfather. Like, there's this whole other side to Francis Ford Coppola that like, I feel is probably more in line with who he truly is. You know, like I would rather have a conversation with him about this than another Godfather conversation or something like that. And, you know, talking about like his, his like nerdy, his nerd cred and all that, like, I feel like the Godfather damaged his, his credibility in that circle. Unfortunately, but it it shouldn't, but it does because it got too mainstream. Yeah. Yeah, and then people get upset with you when you get too kind of like trivial about his work, right? And it's like Dementia 13, like where are you pulling that out of? And like, why is it worth watching and all this kind of shit? And it's like, because it is, it's worth, you got to look at the big picture, you know, to get all the info. And then it makes rewatching the movies even more fun, you know? Then you can go back to The Godfather and you see, like, what he brought into other stuff or maybe things he's only tried once in that movie, which makes it so special. It's it's a fun journey. And there's really no order you can really watch these movies in. We could have gone chronologically, but I think my watching of Dracula before this enhanced my watching of One from the Heart, if that makes sense. No, I, I agree wholeheartedly. The last thing I'll say on this, we'll get off our soapboxes, just on this particular take i always think of the beatles right like almost everyone likes the beatles to an extent but if i were to talk to not everyone but you know what i mean that's the most mainstream band of all time and if i were to say to somebody oh what what's or someone was to ask me what's your favorite beatles song and i say hey jude or something right 
I might get an eye roll from some people who are really into music, like, oh, hey, Jude. What? That's a great song, a musically beautiful song, but it's too mainstream for some people. But but again, if someone asked me, <laughs> um, what's my favorite Beatles song? And I said, um, like, I was just like looking some up on, on my Spotify, Mother Nature's Son off the White Album. Amazing song. No one's heard of it. And there's some crowds who'd be like, yeah, man, that's a great song. And again, my mom would be like, what? <laughs> See, it's so weird. My, my favorite Beatles song, it feels like one no one's heard of, but it's still off the White Album. So I feel like that's still like too mainstream. But yet, <laughs> you know, when I, tell, when I tell people like my favorite Beatles song is Dear Prudence, they're like, like what? Yeah, good song, though. Yeah, about Mia Farrow's sister. I didn't know that. Yeah. From what I understand, they were all, they were all like in uh, India or something together. They're all like together like doing the retreat and she wouldn't come out of her tent or something i don't know what the full story is it's been a while but anyway so one more sequence i want to talk about and then you know any other sequences you want to talk about um i think we've done a lot of the movie just in the way we've been conversing Uh, just the whole sequence when the two couples are just juxtaposed with what they're doing at the time together when Franny and Raul Julia, what's his name? Ray. They first get together and they're like dancing and that molds in to the circus girl and Hank. And first they're like, again, we're seeing like cutaways and projections of each other. But then it floats onto the street. Like it's it starts a trippy sequence, but it's 4th of July. So it sort of makes sense in Vegas where they're sort of see each other and they still choose the past they're on and it ends mm-hmm. with this whole they end up you know in a long thing of sleeping with their new lovers both of them again different ways different motivations especially like franny first she kind of sort of says no then she changes her mind goes down the elevator and he's waiting for her in the cab like super suave I don't know. What would you say? That's a good like half an hour I'm talking about right here that just sort of flows into itself that I think is just yeah. so beautiful. It's just so amazing. I mean, this movie gets to a point where it like peaks, I think, you know, at some point where with the 4th of July celebration in the streets and it literally becomes like a Bubsy Berkeley musical number yeah. for a minute. I mean, no singing, but they all start dancing together. And the way that they do cross, they cross a couple times without, I think once or twice. I don't know if it's just clever, clever editing or if they actually were supposed to be like crossing each other. But then there's the time where they actually lock eyes and look at each other and see their partner. And they're like, all right, go have fun. Like, see you later. That whole thing. There's just such a great sense of momentum with this entire movie, you know? Like, I feel like it's building, 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 and then we're going, like, down, down, down. Not in, like, a bad way, but, like, just, like, the momentum of the movie is, like, sort of this, like, roller coaster type. It really moves uh, really well, I think. And a lot of that has to do with the way the camera guides you through all the sequences, the amazing choreography, the the split-second timing of everything. Um, I don't know... If you saw this in the notes, but uh, that lovely couple in the elevator that uh, when they can't decide to get off at the floor, those are Mr. and Mrs. Coppola. The, yeah, that is, good uh, to see them. Uh, Uncle Francis's father and mother. Uh, very cool. And I just I just love the the timing and everything with this sequence and, and the stuff with Terry Gar and him waiting downstairs for her like it's it's a visual marvel like that's the problem about talking about this movie is i get swept up in like every moment about it because there's so much to say that i almost feel like i start tripping over myself in a lot of ways so hopefully by the time we come back around to this i'll 
a little more calm and, and, uh, you know, my words will be picked a little bit better, but yeah, it's just, just trying to get across just like the, the genuine sort of shock and awe of like how amazing this was like to watch. Like this was just so much fun to watch. It's a shame it didn't succeed because I think again, if he keeps that studio up and knowing Francis's ethos and just the way he he runs his life and his belief in independent filmmaking, we might have seen more films like this, uh, more of a incubator for people with interesting, fun ideas of how filmmaking should go. Just people away from that studio system. And it's, again, it's a shame that a movie that doesn't deserve the shit it got at the time is the reason why this could not continue. And I don't want to put my conspiracy yeah. theory tin hat on it, but maybe that's part of it too. Maybe studios did not want this to succeed. I don't know. It could be. It could be. Brian, you're not going to wear your tin olive oil can on your head <laughs> during all this. I won't either. However, I do feel like after this group of filmmakers, like not just him, but, you know, Lucas is coming off of Jedi. Spielberg is what going into the color purple probably around it like everybody like and not just those guys you know but i'm trying to think of who else was there They're like robert zemeckis is really hitting like all of these guys are having their way and the old guard is really being removed and the and the young new hollywood is like cementing their feet firmly you know and be like we're here and i feel like the studios are pissed about that in the 80s you know i feel like they get a little kind of like resentful of coppola and and the success of these guys to be like cut him down a peg or two you know and it even it happened with spielberg you know i i can't quite pinpoint the moment but it's not like every single movie he made was a huge success i know you know even though it was very early on he he almost never made a movie after 1942 was it 1942 um his like horribly failed comedy which really isn't that bad no it's not at all it's just it's just not what people wanted you know and it's too bad and whenever they try to give somebody something that they don't know yet something new something different that's when the studio is like no 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 like we're pulling the plug we're pulling the plug like for francis if it's not another godfather forget it if george was still part of the studio if it's not another star wars forget it Unfortunately to me, that's my conspiracy theory. Look, I tend to agree. I, I think you're onto something there. And just back quickly to just Vegas movies, I keep thinking again about what you said regarding like two types of Vegas movies. What Francis did here, he took what's the movie the the his nephew's movie, Honeymoon in Vegas? Remember that one with Sarah oh, yeah. Parker? And Nick Cage. He took a movie yeah. like that. Or um what's the one with Matthew Perry? Or <laughs> And Salma Hayek, like, oh, God, fools rush in. Like, these, right. like, silly romantic comedies. And look, from what I read, the script was sort of like that originally. And he put the extraordinary around it. And I think people don't like that. I was trying to go through reviews to see, like, of the people who didn't like it, what was their issue. And it was all, like, the visual doesn't match the story. It's, it's a big visual movie and a simple story. And I'm like, why is that a problem? I love that. I love the fact that... He's taking, you know, these big colors and big strokes and, and just big sequences. And he's projecting it on an everyday, regular story. You might not like this couple, 
but it's a realistic couple. Yes. A lot of people criticized Hank. They said Hank was not likable or Hank was too boring and he wasn't like, and we even said earlier in the episode, maybe Raul Julia would be better in that role. That was a big criticism too. And I get that as well, but there is still something, a part of me that doesn't want to change it. We have so many movies that examine the ordinary and we have so many movies that go to space that examine the extraordinary. Why not just combine both? And I guess people don't agree with me yes. on it, but I love it. Yeah, yeah, because, you know, ordinary people, they they have dreams and fantasies too, you know? It's like, yeah, it, it should apply to everybody, right? So, like, why not give the big Hollywood treatment to your everyday average ordinary couple kind of thing, you know? Uh, but unfortunately, people want it, want it more like Harry Met Sally than this, you know? They don't, this is a by, I think this is also a throwback to a bygone era. This is his attempt to do that musical that they put him on, that Irish Finnegan. Oh, fin- Finnegan's Rainbow? Finnegan's Rainbow, right? Like, this is his attempt to sort of harken back and be like, going to try and do an old studio version of my movie or something like that. So, yeah, I don't know. I, I just... I'm just glad that he got it out, you know, and it's like, damn everyone else. (laughs) And it's also really quickly this idea, too, that he likes to propagate. Indie films don't have to just be shot on the street with a single camera or two cameras. And, and, you know, like indie, at least to him, indie films can be big productions. So he tried and failed here. But I got a feeling, like Van Gogh, (laughs) like a lot of the great artists in their time, some of their work was not appreciated in its own time, hundred years from now, when we're examining, oh, maybe not you and me, probably not you and me, <laughs> examining the career of Francis Ford Coppola, when people are just seeing him as the artist he is, without any context at the time, they're going to be like, "Oh wow, this is one of his best films." They will say that. Brian, you you just summed up what I've been trying to say the whole time. Okay, you got to forget about the context of Francis Ford Coppola, like entirely. <laughs> You know, and you, it's impossible, but it's like picking a jury. You know, you just have to try and be as impartial as possible. And I do really wish that there was maybe for the first time, like, no title. So you could be like, who directed that? Francis Ford Coppola? Like, get the fuck out of here. Absolutely. Uh, last thing on my notes, love that it's raining in the end. It does harken back to those old Hollywood films. The airport thing, too. The fact that it's at an airport, those old Hollywood yeah. films. And, yeah, and the fantasy yeah. of the the pouring rain in Vegas like that, like obviously Vegas is in a desert. Um, it's it's nice. It's it's a nice, cool, fun, worthwhile ending. Yeah, you know what I love about that in particular is like when I was in school, I was like, I don't know if I'm allowed to do this, but I was writing like a short couple pages, you know, and in it, this guy, like sees this girl he wants to like approach her but then in the last minute sees that she has a boyfriend so he walks away and it starts raining okay and my teacher was kind of like oh that was a nice touch like don't forget class like you're basically god like you can make it rain you can change the weather anytime like it can be in service of an emotional beat it doesn't have to reflect reality at all so like that's what i loved about the ending here is like yeah, raining in Vegas just not that it doesn't, but like it just seems so like off, you know, that it was a hundred percent done for dramatic effect. Okay. And that's what this movie is. Everything is done for dramatic effect. And I just 
I, I mean, that, that is such a great example. I love that. And, you know, he's feeling like crap. He just lost his girl. Of course it starts raining. He goes home, he turns all the lights out. It's dark as can be. And then when she shows back up, it's a beautiful day. The lights come back on. Like we're back in Technicolor. Like so great. Yeah. So, so great. I, I want to watch this movie again. And honestly, it's not long. And it's pretty easy to watch since it's flowing like that. I didn't yes. feel like I was watching it forever. You know what I mean? It didn't drag. I was really afraid that this movie was going to drag because the movies that tend to be bad are the ones that drag, right? Or at least that people think are bad. I don't obviously don't think this movie is bad, but when I heard yes. that it didn't get good reviews, I thought, oh man, it's going to be convoluted. It might drag a little bit. Not at all for me. So I don't know. That's my two cents. Love it. I love that you love this. You know, I, I, not that I didn't think you wouldn't like it, but like I did not think that I was going to come out of it being like, that's fucking amazing. <laughs> like I am, I'm just floored about this movie. Yeah, just, just shocking. You know, it just is like, look at the effort. And you don't see half this effort these days, I feel, you know, unless you're like making Oppenheimer or like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Like you just don't, I don't feel the effort like they, like this. Which is sad to say. So, I mean, can you imagine if there is a 30-minute long take in the middle of Megalopolis to sort of reference back to this style of filmmaking that he did? Like, how amazing would that be? Megalopolis could look like this. We have no idea. You know, it's shot in Atlanta. It's being shot on stage. So, who knows, right? It could. This could be the style he's going back to. You know what this reminded me of? The last thing I got to say is like the way that this is shot, it just it feels like Westworld. Like it feels like he set up like Westworld Vegas and like just sent two actors in and they were picking up these loops. Oh, like they, they you know, yeah. like it, it has like that weird vibe because it's got like that manufactured reality to it, you know, and, and the way like Westworld, Truman Show, like that whole kind of thing is is sinks in way hard for me. So uh, Coppola in his, you know, special trailer being the voice of God makes a lot more sense now then. Brian, is that the tattoo? <laughs> maybe, maybe. Think on that one, Mike. Well, that's all I have to say about One for the Heart. You guys should should watch it out there if you haven't already. If you've listened to two hours of us talking about it, what are you doing? Go watch it. Anything else you want to say, Mike? <laughs> Happy Valentine's Day. Oh, yes. Happy Valentine's Day. <laughs> Why don't you and your, your loved one watch this film for Valentine's Day week? Why not? Friday night. Not that Valentine's Day is on a Friday, but maybe when this comes out, it'll be closer to Friday, right? <laughs> so Friday night, get a bottle of wine. Get a bottle of Coppola wine, of course. Yeah. Light some candles and watch one from the heart. <laughs> Just don't spend your girlfriend's money without telling her. that is a big big no-no good advice there well remember follow the show on social media you can check me out on twitter at oh my rodriguez i don't tweet a lot but you can check out my other show high school slumber party i'm also on mike's other show very frequently third time's a charm and mike what else do you got down the pike you have a lot of other other shows yes there's a lot of other shows on the network a lot of movies coming out this year that are gonna sort of restart some old shows possibly there's a john wick coming so we'll get back to keanu club but uh, joey and i we just recently recorded a new episode of viva pod vegas the elvis presley podcast terry gar mentioned in this film she's in a lot of elvis movies fun in acapulco 
We just recently watched that one. She's in there somewhere. Uh, we also watched The Old Way, which is Nick Cage's new movie, which is a Western for the titular Cage Club show. And what else are we getting up uh, up to? We're getting up to some other stuff, some, some stuff coming up, very exciting things in the future with Joey and I. But Dan Colon, my other co-host for The Monsters That Made Us, is the last Friday of every month where we talk about the history of Universal Monster movies, and we're going through them one by one. We just recorded the Creature from the Black Lagoon episode, so I'm in the process of cutting that together. That should be out the end of February. Uh, yeah, for everything else I'm on, you can find me at cageclub.me. Mike, you, you got to end the show, though. One more thing. Oh, uh, leave the podcast. I take the cannoli. This is the end. Beautiful prayer. This is the end. My only friend. The end of our elaborate plans. The end. Of everything that stands the end No say